namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Bhutang tamang sankhang namasami. In the um, Dhamma discussion, the question time today, I was uh, one of the things that came up was the uh, the issue of. Um, Difficult conversations, difficult relationships, um, how to work skillfully with those. Um, uh, when we are encountering people with different perspectives, uh, different uh, priorities in life, different moods, uh, uh, how can we best work? How can we best live and relate with other people in the family, in the workplace, in the the world around us in the monastery uh, it's all uh, the issues are essentially the same uh, in uh, the human community well, the um the issue of communication and trying to be helpful and trying to establish harmonious connections that we have with each other is uh, is quite challenging but it's, it's also i would say a, an area that's uh, related to the subject of meta which has been coming up uh, quite a lot the um the usual dialogue that we have with other people is i'm trying to understand you and you are hopefully trying to understand me i'm trying to get my point across to you and you're trying to get your point across to me. So there's uh, the effort at communication. But uh, again, it's also along with being connected to metta and loving kindness is also connected to self-view. Because the more I'm trying to communicate with you, and there's a solid me here and a solid you out there, kind of a separate independent uh, self and other, then uh, no matter how hard we try, there can always be a, a disconnection, a lack of real uh, communication, a lack of communion. So that uh, this is a helpful area to look at. Uh, people here on the retreat, everyone is keeping silence apart from the interviews and the Dhamma discussion, so it's not so much of an issue this week, <laughs> but come Sunday, uh, when uh, we all start talking again and re-enter re the, the world of uh, activity and connections and family and relationships, then that all comes very much uh, uh, alive. So uh, it can be confusing or frustrating. We can try very, very hard to be being compassionate, to be, to be helpful, uh, and then uh, uh, if we're experiencing that effort of I'm not getting through or I'm not really being heard or I can't really understand what he wants 
uh, it can be uh, frustrating and difficult, uh, hard for us to, to work with. So that um, uh, I feel that if we look at this area and see what are the attitudes of mind that we have, what are our expectations, um, then uh, the um, picture can change somewhat. Many years ago, uh, when, uh, and I've, I've told this story many, many times, but it was extremely impactful, very striking when this dialogue took place. And it was many years ago in the early days of Chitta Viveka Monastery in, in Sussex. And uh, uh, speaking about having difficulties with the family, <laughs> one of the the eight precept nuns, uh, the uh, um, uh, the general issue or situation with her family was one of criticism and tension. They were not happy with her being a nun. They were very conservative Christians, and uh, they were. Uh, very um, critical of Ajahn Sumedho and Buddhism, and and they wouldn't allow their daughter's shaved head to be seen in the house. So when if she went to go and visit them, she always had to wear a, a woolly hat because they literally refused to see her shaved head in the home. So there had been some history of tension and difficulty there. But this uh, nun was very, very. She's a very, very sincere person and was keen to try and do things in a good way and to be helpful. Uh, and when uh, tea time, uh, we were having a santanatam, a Dhamma questions with Lumpo Sumato, and uh, she asked the question, um, what, is the, what is the best thing that we can do in relationship to our, our family? What's the kindest thing we can do to, to be helpful to our parents in particular? And the response that Lumpur Sumedho gave, uh, and, and when, he, when he said it, it was almost like he was hearing it for the first time as well as the rest of us. Because what he said was, the kindest thing that you can do for your parents is not to create them. So a very interesting answer. <laughs> the kindest thing you can do for your parents is not to create them. And particularly in this Buddhist culture where being respectful towards your parents and uh, grateful and to be working hard to support your parents is a very, very strong part of society in, in Thailand and the, the Southeast Asia. But uh, I would say that comment is uh, uh, even more relevant here than uh, in the Western world where our, our relationship to our parents can be a, a bit more distant and a bit more... Um, the, uh, psychologically and physically distant than you find here in in Asia. So what does that mean to say uh, the kindest thing you can do for your parents is not to create them? It doesn't mean that when you go to visit your mum, you say, you don't exist, mum. You know, you're a nice person, but you don't really exist. That's not what this means. Uh, what, what it means is that we don't uh, create the idea of our parents or other loved ones, our children, our spouses, our partners, our, our ajans, <laughs> our disciples. Uh, you, you're not creating ideas about them, creating a fixed view, a fixed picture, and then carrying that around. And then uh, when, um, uh, uh, 
when we don't do that, when we refrain from creating people in our mind and carrying them around, then when we actually meet, when we have an encounter, then uh, what uh, what happens is we're meeting the what's actually present rather than our idea or our our projection or our anxiety about that person, our memories of how it's been in the past. Um, because if we create someone, it means we've got the story of, oh, my mother's like this, my father's like that, my, my sister's this way, yeah, my son is like this, my daughter, she's like that, and yeah, and my my husband or my you know, my my wife, my partner, my Ajahn. Oh. He's, we tell these stories. It's the kind of uh, the sort of narrative self, but also the narrative other. We uh, and like I was telling stories about my family, my you know, my my uh, father's and uh, my mother's focus on table manners or my family my parents family history so we re we re repeat these stories and we make them into solid realities or seemingly solid realities and so um we are continually rehearsing those images those pictures those judgments things that we like and that we approve of things that we dislike or things that we are afraid of things that we have opinions about so the more that we create each other and carry those perceptions and opinions those judgments around when we meet you might be face to face sitting across a table or across a room but <laughs> when you're speaking you're speaking to your set of projections and uh, rather than actually really meeting quote unquote the other person and similarly particularly if they're not a Dhamma practitioner, they're very likely to be doing the same with you. So you don't actually have a dialogue, you have two monologues, if you understand the English. Like, you know, you're, you're kind of saying your piece to your projection of them, and they're saying their piece to their projection of you. So then, then we wonder why there's a lack of, of harmony or communication. If you think, how does he know? <laughs> Like it's not psychic power; it's uh, it's human nature <laughs> and statistics. This is how most of us are as human beings in our relationships. So this uh, the development of insight and letting go of self view. Um, and what I was saying to our friend here about um, body awareness, uh, all of these things can be extremely helpful in not creating each other not creating your parents your children your partners your fellow monastics your fellow members of your society that uh, because uh, the um the insight into not self its partner is insight into not other <laughs> uh, and to to be um say living life based on mindfulness and wisdom and uh, and attuning, uh, tuning into the time, the place, the situation, and letting our conversations, our time together with each other, arise from that contact and be guided by what's useful, what's appropriate in the moment, then we find we can have genuine, helpful dialogues. The, uh, the aspect of, of body awareness is very important, uh, I found, particularly, as I say, my habit was always to be drawn into other people's moods if they were excited i would get excited too if they were anxious i would get anxious too if they were irritated i would join in with that so 
the more that we can uh, notice the the sensations of our body feel how we are holding the body whether we're sitting in a chair or we're standing talking or we're just on a phone or uh, uh, having a skype call through a computer screen whatever it might be if there's that dividing our attention a little bit to to notice how uh, how is the body being held am i are my hands clenched <laughs> are my shoulders up around my ears you know, is my stomach tight as a drum um uh, are my teeth clenched <laughs> am i talking through clenched teeth yeah how is it uh what what is the body feeling like and often it doesn't take a lot of effort or a lot of attention just a certain amount uh, of of uh, attention just to notice from time to time okay this is the body is stressing my my shoulders are tight or my my stomach is tight okay being aware of that then letting that awareness inform uh, relaxation particularly if the other person is saying things that are challenging or upsetting or irritating like she's <laughs> to to notice the physical reaction that's present and to uh, to relax with that to let the body soften and be at ease and to settle and uh, it is quite remarkable uh, uh, how and i think i was saying this uh, earlier today how if uh, i think in one of the interview groups um how if uh, if you're being uh, if you're on the receiving end of some aggressive words or a, an aggressive aggressive manner from your boss say or family member and you know, uh, and then you uh, tighten up you you're, you're feeling afraid you get defensive and you and you you kind of put the barriers up then that tends to cause the aggression to increase <laughs> from the other side if however you notice like wow he's really in a mood today <laughs> it's really a this is a strong delivery and you make the effort to to relax to be paying attention to to be receiving what the person is is putting out but to uh, to uh, be open hearted to have the acceptance the meta uh, of acceptance of whatever that person's putting out then you're not creating the signals of fear or of defensiveness you're not intimidated in the same way and the, and the, the your body language your expression just the the way that your breathing all of that that contributes to the exchange and that particularly if it's you know in the same room uh, face to face and that what can easily happen is if you're not giving the signals back of i'm intimidated i'm defending myself and you're not, you're not going to upset me but uh, you know and then thereby creating more tension if you're relaxed if you're at ease if you're open then it's almost like the person is pushing against an open door if you understand they kind of there's not a resistance there so that um without meeting fearfulness or defensiveness then their aggression doesn't have a, anything to push against it's like pushing against an open door and and uh it much is much more easily comes to an end uh, so you're listening to what the person's saying you're receiving uh, uh what they're saying and hearing it uh and uh, but yet making that choice not to be intimidated not to be defensive 
but to instead hear what they say, let there be some sati sampajanya, that, that of receiving what they're saying into the space of the heart, and then similarly responding from that place of sati sampajanya, of intuitive awareness. So uh, again, not being, uh, uh, say, not creating them as a person and not having a, a prepared script of what you want to say, but uh, attuning to the moment and let the words come. As I was saying, if, if we're really attentive, then the appropriate words for the situation will, uh, will tend to arise and tend to, to come into being. And when we're not intimidated or, or, or buying into that contention, then uh, it can help diffuse the, the mood or the aggression that the other person is, is displaying. Uh, uh, the uh, the dialogue, uh, I think maybe I mentioned a, a few days ago, where the, the Buddha was sitting in the forest and this uh, Brahmin, uh, a professional uh, philosopher and debater called Dandapani, uh, was walking through the woods and he saw the Buddha sitting under a tree and he thought, oh, this is that great Samana Gautama. He's famous as a, a teacher, as a brilliant expounder of uh, philosophy, uh, but he's not as clever as me. You know, I'm, I'm a professional. You know, I really know what I'm doing. And so he thought he'd go and challenge the Buddha and to, to uh, get into a debate and, and show the, the Buddha how he, that he, Dandapani, was actually far superior so kind of looking for an argument, looking for a, a um, conflict. And so he, he went up to, to the Buddha sitting under a tree and, and said, so uh, you are the Samana Gotama, is that correct? And said, yes, indeed. Uh, and so, so um, what is it that you practice? What is it that you teach? What is the philosophy that, that you follow? And so getting the Buddha to describe his, his teaching, his practice, and then Dandapani would sort of jump in and, and refute Kind of, uh, uh, would make a, a, um, a, criti a criticism a, a of the, the Buddha's teaching and how his practice was wrong and faulty. But the Buddha was an extremely gifted reader of, uh, of social situations, as well as having psychic powers. So he knew exactly where Dandapani was coming from. So he's, uh, his response was, from that place of mindfulness and wisdom, uh, was the... He said, I, uh, I follow such a practice that uh, involves non-contention with anyone in the world. So I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> and so because he was speaking from a place of great peacefulness and clarity and said, the philosophy I follow is non-contention, not contending with anyone. You're looking for contention. You're looking for a fight, an argument. You're pushing against an open door. <laughs> so I'm not going to, to pick this up. And um, it's, uh, it, uh, it's up to you what you, what you do with this. So uh, Dandapani was uh, not ready for that. And as it says in the sutta, this is in the, the Madhu Pindaka sutta, the, 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 the uh, honeyball sutta. It says he clicked his tongue his, uh, uh, and his his um, forehead puckered into three furrows and then wagging his head he went off into the forest having nothing to say so, <laughs> so that was a, a, a an example of um 
how to receive somebody's aggression with great peacefulness, with respectfulness, but absolutely appropriately. Um, and it led to a, a um, uh, Dandapani couldn't start a fight. And also it led to a, a great teaching that uh, um, is uh, on conceptual proliferation. So I feel this is a helpful principle, not creating others uh, to... Uh, be bringing into awareness uh, where we're engaging with others um, and so that uh, hopefully you can understand what I mean by that not creating self and not creating others so that we're um, in, a, in, a, in a way we're creating an atmosphere of freshness there's a, a, a an un uh, uh, a kind of an unburdened unbiased attitude in our heart when we meet with other people we're not expecting them or to be a particular way we're not wanting them to be like this or like that we're open to however it happens to be and then responding from how it is in this moment this is, is also related to um another teaching that i like to emphasize um because what we we don't realize is that we each create our own version of the world moment by moment. And uh, another of the causes of conflict and difficulty in our lives, uh, I would suggest, again, not reading anybody's mind, just <laughs> how we are as human beings, one of the causes of conflict and struggle uh, in the workplace and the family and society is that uh, in our ordinary everyday way of thinking, uh, we assume that we see the world as it actually is. Is that? I, I don't think that, that, that. I don't think that's too much of an exaggeration. Most of us go through life thinking, "Yeah, I, I see the world the way it is." Um, but the um, the if you have been watching your mind <laughs> for the last week and uh, and for however many years practicing meditation, then uh, we each begin to realize that uh, our, what we experience is not so much the world, but our mind's version of the world. So our mind makes a representation, it makes a best guess of what's going on, of the place where we are, what's happening around us, what's the best way to, to work with the situation that, that we're in. So the teaching I like to quote on this, which is, it's a short sutta, but uh, one of the most, I would say, important and profound teachings that we have in the, in the Pali Canon. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, rela uh, it's related to the Buddha's definition of, of what he means by loka, the world. And uh, what he says is that through which uh, one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world, that is called the world in this Dhamma and discipline. And what is it whereby, what is it through which uh, one is a perceiver of the world, that's loka sanyi, it's the Pali, and a conceiver of the world, loka mani. And then he answers, he answers his own question, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. So 
This is the, the means whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world. So the world, according to the Buddha's definition, is not the planet or the, the cosmos and the stars in the, uh, in the sky, but the world is, again, much closer to home. It's the world of our experience. It's the world as our mind puts it together. Um, so uh, it says that which that whereby we are a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world that is the world and what what is that means what is that method whereby we are conceiving and perceiving the world seeing hearing smelling tasting touching thinking so what it's saying is uh, uh, the only world that we can meaningfully talk about is the world of our own experience now our experience might be having studied a lot of science and uh, you might be a biologist or a zoologist or a physicist or a chemist or a, an astronomer a, a doctor um yeah the uh, there's a lot of knowledge that we have about the world this body the uh, the biological world the chemical physical world the astronomical world um, but those books those lectures all came through our eyes and our, our ears uh, through the the thinking mind so um it's not saying that there is you know, all of this is just our imagination that we're kind of dreaming the the world into existence but what it's saying is the the only world that we can meaningfully talk about is the world of our experience and so uh, the the Buddha brings again brings it right home. Like I was saying, he didn't talk about the the origin of living beings or the ultimate beginning of things, but he talked about how dukkha begins. So when he again in a similar way, rather than talking about the world as the planet and the cosmos and the, all the stars and galaxies, that the world is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. That's the world that we can know. And so I feel this is. A very very helpful teaching in western philosophy this is called a phenomenological approach and so this little book um that uh was just uh, was uh reprinted here in thailand uh, and uh, i think copies are available uh here in the lobby free of course but uh this is very significant because the more that we can appreciate that i don't see the world you don't see the world you see your mind's version of the world so necessarily your world is going to be at least a bit different from mine that's got to be the case so if we really take that to heart then is it any surprise that one person says oh that's ugly another another one says oh it's beautiful one says this is delicious another one says Ugh, do you want to eat that really of course <laughs> because we live in different versions of the world and so uh, uh, it's a very simple uh, a short teaching but it conveys a very very uh, significant principle so if we can really take that to heart then in our relationships with other people of course your children experience a different world than you do like i was talking about my parents so 
So when I, 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 it was only when I got to be about the age that my parents were when I was about three or four years old. So when I got into my early 40s, I would found myself able to put my put myself into my parents' shoes. If that, if you have that expression in in Thai or in in Paso Malaysia, <laughs> so that I, I uh, my parents were always the them, your mum and dad. That they're, they're a sort of different group, different species. I couldn't really compare my life to theirs. But when I got to be the kind of age that they were, they were both in their late thirties, early forties when I was born. So when I got to that age, like I'm looking in the mirror, I think, oh, hello, dad. <laughs> Didn't expect you here, you know. Uh, but then I could, I don't know why, but for some reason I could, I could put myself into their shoes. My dad was this age when I was born, or my dad was this age when I was three or four, and, you know, my, and my mother similarly. And so I began to kind of contemplate their life. And as I said, my, my father's parents, my, my, my paternal grandfather, my father's father, he was born before London had electricity, before motor cars existed. 1863, my grandfather was born. Is it any surprise that my dad, Growing up in a family with a father born in 1863, his mother born in 1875. So, of course, his conditioning, what he got from his parents in a Victorian family, is completely different than me, born in 1956, growing up in the, the kind of hippie 60s. So, naturally, we are living in very different worlds. So, when uh, I was that kind of an age in my early 40s, I was had these embarrassing memories. Of, oh, my goodness. Those kind of shouting arguments over Sunday lunch. <laughs> those kind of uh, pompous, kind of uh, conceited views I had judging my mother and my father and uh, why they couldn't see, why they didn't agree with me, why, did, why they had a whole different value system. And I contemplated their lives and I thought, you you moron, <laughs> you're an idiot. You know, the, they grew up in a completely different world, completely different. It was like uh, the, say, what, what Cheng Rai was like, uh, you know, 150 years ago. What was this? What was here in 1863? Probably a lot of forest. <laughs> you know, a few small villages maybe. But totally different world. Hadn't even heard of electricity or even petrol probably by that time completely different world so is it any surprise that you don't really understand each other that you can't really communicate so uh i had a it was a mixture of relief and embarrassment <laughs> so thinking that that through i think wow i was so stupid and conceited uh why didn't i really consider how different their lives had been and how you know as individuals it, May, you know, made it through the Second World War and survived, and starting a life in the in the English countryside. Uh, that uh, how could it not be that their background, their lives, their histories made a, such a different set of uh, perceptions of the world than, than my sisters and myself? So uh, that was quite insightful to really appreciate that. I didn't, I wasn't uh, particularly aware of this this sutta teaching at that time. 
but the the basic principle of like wow no wonder we argued so much because <laughs> we are in very very different versions of the world so of course there was a lack of understanding so when uh, and then when i really began to appreciate that i found it was much easier to get on with my parents much easier to have sympathy to empathize with their point of view and i probably was much easier to live with and <laughs> get along with uh, for them as well so this is a, a a a helpful principle to bring to mind to keep remembering that what we experience is not the world it's my mind's version of the world so of course it's conditioned by the family you're born into how many siblings you have how many sisters how many brothers if you have any sisters or brothers were you adopted uh were your parents uh, was it were you uh, an ex uh, an expected child an unexpected child you know uh, you a child of, of older parents did the marriage break up uh, what school did you go to uh, were you were you very poor were you very rich did you have a title uh, growing up all of these things contribute and and have a, a big effect uh, as i was living in the the sangha and uh, spending uh, time in community and getting to know other people's lives um then i really began to uh, similarly to appreciate wow people grew up in very different worlds the the members of the sangha uh, nuns and monks who were adopted as children their perception of life and the feelings of, of security or family were very very different than those who were you know with the uh with their birth parents people who came from broken homes and uh, very very different background very different experience so it was uh over the years it's been very instructive very revealing and to say oh yeah we we have very different uh, expectations very different uh things that we are conditioned by and and within that we can see well patterns of conditioning that have brought painful results kind of uh defilements within us or anxieties or aversions or or biases so, oh see oh well uh, i'm my mind is like this or my my personality is like this but that's you know probably because yeah um we lost all our money when i was a, when i was very young or or um or we suddenly moved to that huge house and we uh, and uh, the whole world was different uh, so that we can look at the patterns of conditioning and understand both where our difficulties come from also our, our blessings so again just to maybe bring my parents into the picture again so i never saw my parents argue not once the entire time i, I argued with them <laughs> but they never argued with each other at least never in front of the children and so um when i casually mentioned that once or many years ago like i never saw my parents argue i get this look from the other sangha members like really so yeah i never saw my my mum and dad argue with each other they were either they were extremely disciplined and never argued in front of the children <laughs> but uh they uh that was uh, a, a a standard they maintained that there was the the home was a was a, a safe place and there was harmony in the family similarly um 
I noticed over time, particularly being in a teaching role, how one of the things that uh, people would be uh, distressed by or would have as a difficulty uh, was if they were unfairly treated as children, or you know, either as young children or growing up, and how their, if their parents or the school teachers uh, uh, demonstrated favoritism, like saying, oh, you're the best student, or you're, you're, you're the star pupil, or like, uh, you're, a, uh, you, uh, you're worth sending to a great school, but your brother's useless. We're not going to waste money on him, but we, we're going to spend a lot of money to send you to a good school because you're, you're the bright one. And it would amaze me, uh, people have actually being uh, told such things by their parents, literally being told, we're not going to waste money on sending you to a good school because you're useless. You know, and people hearing that age sort of, six or seven years old i would really be kind of my jaw hanging open like wow because uh, again one of the things that i feel extremely grateful in my family my, my parents were not arahants obviously <laughs> although they wouldn't have children but uh, they uh they but they uh, well they had the uh very uh, very skillful standards so that there was a completely uh, uh level playing field it was completely fair shares for all none of us as children were were favorites everyone had equal shares everyone had equal treatment equal resources for everyone we we're all quite different personalities so we we're all interested in different things but uh, there was never any favoritism and i feel that's a, a wonderful gift and uh, and i feel that in the sangha and also the kind of position of leadership i have I very consciously have, so having received that standard from my parents, I make the effort to uh, to make no favorites in the monastery. Some people are is easier to get along with than others, or easier to understand than others, of course. But no one gets special treatment. No one gets special favors. No one is the star pupil. <laughs> no one is the the, the dud. You know, horrible, kind of terrible word. But uh, everyone is treated with absolute uh, evenness, and uh, and I feel that's uh, very very uh, important, uh, and uh, in terms of creating a, a beneficial and supportive environment. So when we look at the, our worlds, <laughs> the world we've grown up in, then that quality of of discernment of recognizing what's wholesome, what's unwholesome. Uh, what's beneficial what's unbeneficial the things that are unbeneficial like if you were the the dud that wasn't worth educating or <laughs> you're the kind of the the uh, the unwanted uh, child that was unexpected and came along late um, then that those difficulties or the the kind of negative uh, aspects that come from that kind of situation they can be sources of great wisdom that we can learn a lot from from uh that situation it's not just something that has to be a problem or a burden but rather like that having been the conditioning that that piece of the world has got that that tone that shape but that can be a source of wisdom it doesn't have to be something as a seen as a fixed problem so in in terms of um, so going back to what I was saying first of all about how um, we create each other or project uh, on each other, um, 
when relationships are based on self-view, then no matter how close we are physically, or you know, sharing houses or sharing lives, there's always going to be some kind of feeling of separation. So it's a relationship of separateness. Even if you're trying to get closer, there's me here, you there, then that there's always going to be a a, a, a a separateness there. When uh, a relationship is based on a lack of self-view and on a genuine loving kindness, um, then there's a different tone. This can still be very, very loving, very genuine uh, and warm and, and friendly and and delightful. But there is, a, but there's a much greater quality of of harmony and communion, communication, a, a genuine samagi, a, a togetherness. Uh, the uh, uh, samagi literally means uh, meeting at the same point. The word for harmony, samagi in Pali, agi is uh, is like the a point. Sama is uh, is together. So coming together at the same point, there's samagi, there's this heart, a genuine harmony uh, between us. The um, when we we love others based on self-view, uh, the the Pali word for that kind of love is piyati, pia, p-i-y-a in Roman letters. Pia, and uh, and this is a, a a subject that oftentimes people find hard to to deal with, or they feel the Buddha was a bit harsh, because uh, the the word pia is often translated as dear. When we have dear ones, when somebody is dear to us, not uh, uh, d e a r dear, like the precious, or or that uh, someone belongs to us, we belong to them. That piety, that uh, dearness, or pieta, uh, um, technically, that dearness. The Buddha said, if you have a hundred dear ones, you have a hundred pains. Fifty dear ones, fifty pains. Ten dear ones, ten pains. Five, four, three, two. One dear one, one pain. No dear ones, no pains. So that might sound a bit harsh, like uh, a bit kind of cold-hearted. But he's talking about that particular kind of loving, which I would call a possessive love or a love based on self-view. Like, I belong to you, you belong to me. Uh, you know, I'm your partner, I'm your Ajahn, you're my Ajahn, you're my mother, I'm your, I'm your father, I'm your daughter. You know, all that I amness. And even if it's that's close and there's a and there's a lot of attachment, necessarily that's going to be painful. And that uh, there was this. Uh, Sutta that uh, is very instructive in this called the Pia Jataka Sutta, born of those who are dear. But the Buddha makes his comment, said, yes, yeah, pain and suffering come from those who are dear to us. When we, we attach to each other with uh, this based on self-view and, and, and grasping, then even though we're trying to love or trying to be supportive or trying to, to be helpful, if it's based on, on those qualities, then pain is going to be there. Um, but that's not the only kind of love, <laughs> because metta uh, and karuna, loving kindness and compassion, they are—they uh, also are genuine forms of love. But they are love which is which liberates. It's liberative love. It's non-possessive. So the Buddha encourages metta. Like the more metta, the better. You know, even rhymes in English. <laughs> the more metta, the better. That uh, the 
uh, abundant, exalted, immeasurable. You know, I will abide pervading one quarter with a heart imbued with loving kindness. Yes, meta for all beings. Yeah, meta for your family members. Meta for people in the in the office, in the hospital, in the monastery. Yeah. The more meta, the better. So that kind of love does not produce suffering uh, if it's free of of self view and free of of grasping. So I feel that. Again, in terms of reflecting on our relationships and uh, the world that we live in, to get to know the difference between pieta, dearness, and metata, and uh, loving kindness, the, uh, they're not the same. They have a different tone, a different texture. And so uh, the, the, the more that metta and karuna, and loving kindness and compassion, can be genuinely cultivated and free of conceit, free of self-view, then uh, we can have a very loving uh, environment uh, and very, um, say, supportive, very delightful, very enjoyable, and genuinely caring, genuinely loving and heartful, but uh, free of possessiveness, free of the causes uh, of suffering. And so uh, this is a, a great encouragement. It's not easy to tell the difference between those two, <laughs> The, the pia kind of love and the meta kind of love. But again, this is something that's helpful to explore in the meditation and watching your mind and particularly feelings of missing somebody or, or uh, and that you, you know you miss someone or you, you want you're longing to to be with them, then that's generally a, a signal that that's the on the pieta <laughs> side of the equation. If uh, you know that you you love someone very much, but if they're not around, you don't miss them, then that's an indication that that's on the metata side of the equation. Not guaranteed, but uh, these kind of ways we can learn to read our own mind, read our own attitudes, and then where we see that uh, that kind of possessive love, that pieta, uh, to to know that, to feel that, to to acknowledge that. And to recognize the, the stressing or the dukkha that comes from that kind of uh, possessive love. So it, it doesn't mean that um, grief with someone that we love has, has passed on or we're, we're away from it. It doesn't mean that grief is a bad thing. It's, a, it's a natural to experience that, um, that sense of absence. Even the, the Buddha made that comment after Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Mahamogalana passed away, he was giving a teaching into an assembly uh, of the Sangha. And he said, it's as if this assembly is empty now that Sariputta and Mogalana have passed away. So the Buddha felt that same kind of, uh, of absence, but he wasn't creating dukkha around it. <laughs> so again, this is a helpful area to explore and to, to, to look at. Okay, uh, that... Uh, my my parents have passed on. Uh, how does it feel that they they've passed on? What what's present in the heart? If those of you who've had partners, your your husband, your wife has passed away, or children who passed away, that uh, when that's brought to mind, how does the heart hold that? And can we find that um, the way that we uh, can appreciate the the presence of each other and also the feelings of, of absence or sadness that someone's passed on, but without that kind of um, 
uh, quality of of clinging uh, attachment it's a uh, uh, it's not easy to to describe or well, the the differences and uh, english is not the first language of most people here but i i do recommend kind of looking into this particularly the areas where there are people that um you are in conflict with people that you are you're keen to always be close to people that you're you're sad that have passed on or you're separated from people that you're really glad that you're separated from your ex ex uh, partners may all beings be happy except her you know or him yeah so it's really helpful to explore these kind of territories uh again not to create a lot of prungdang the kind of uh, conceptual proliferation but just to see how how do we hold each other how do these other folks sit in our in our perceptions in our in our hearts and getting to know that that there's aspects of the world that we create and then um where there is attachment where there's grasping to to know that to feel that and to let that go and where the relationships the connections are wholesome they're based on loving kindness compassion and free of conceit free of self-view then to strengthen those to to support and to rejoice in those so i offer these thoughts for consideration this evening